Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this loose collection of body parts over here is my co-host, Scott Daly. <laughs> this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of Humpty Dumpty heroes, soft-mouthed doggies, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we make our way through the fetus-infected battlefield. Oh, wait, wait, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's old. This <laughs> so we make our way through Arc 11 Blinding with chapters 11.c and 11.9. That's a leftover from last week's script. Whoopsie. Uh, We get a peek at the adorable and disturbing head of Darlene as she expresses her love for Aiden in the form of interpretive stabbing. It's (laughs) awesome, but it doesn't stop Cradle from chopping both Tristan and Tattletail into pieces. Oh, no. Then we jump back to Victoria, who's gathering what's left of the Heartbreak Siders to try and take down all the bad guys and save the world and stuff. This process begins with emotionally whammying a traitorous mercenary. Matt. What did you think of these two chapters? Well, I, I'm extremely excited to get to this Darlene chapter. This is one of those ones where it's it's a character who wasn't really that much on your radar. And then it comes in and, and of course, you know, as usual, is just a wonderful little character study. It's just one of these great examples of, of an interlude where you go from, uh, yeah, I kind of know who that character is, to that character is now seared on my mind forever and yeah. and just like great great moments and and um yeah it's fantastic um and then of course the victoria stuff uh, i i get the sense we're um uh well first first of all there's some great racial stuff in there um and great interactions between characters so can't wait to see what plays out from there yeah i i am um the second chapter of this, I think this might be, I say this now and I'm like doing myself by saying it, but I think this might be a shorter episode this week just because, um, while the second chapter is very good, I think it is very much like a calm before the storm type chapter. Like we've had all this really tense fighting and we had two interludes in a row and then we move back into Victoria and we kind of like, like moving our pieces for the final conflict of this arc. Um, so stuff definitely happens. There's going to be a lot to talk about, but, uh, Maybe not as much this time around. I say that I'm, I'm, I'm we're screwed. It's gonna be a three hour episode. Yeah, well, I felt like the second chapter was just shorter, uh, like in terms of word count. But uh, yeah. yeah, this is totally gonna be a three hour episode. So yeah. Um, <laughs> and th- that being said, why don't we just get on into it? No, let's do it. Chapter eleven dot C, the third interlude of this arc, I believe. Uh, and we, so first of all, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, we continue our peeking into the minds of the marginalized and powerless members of the various gangs. We find ourselves with Darlene. Yeah, and I've had the uh, Jolene song stuck in my head all week um, from the Dolly Parton's Jolene. Yeah. I don't know if I'm the only one who immediately did that, but I've been singing that song all week and writing my own lyrics to it about Darlene. Yeah, I went out of my way to uh, not listen to that so that I didn't have to <laughs> suffer like you do. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I think I think it's a good point that you bring up here. It's that the marginal marginalized and powerless members of the various gangs, um, because, you know, if we if we're looking at a trend across this group, like when we started this arc, I think when we got to our first interlude and we saw that it was side piece, I think both of us were like, oh, OK, this is going to be each of the interludes in this arc is going to be going through a member of Love Lost's gang and we're going to work through them one by one. Um, and then this interlude shows up and it's like, no, it's not. But we are seeing, you know, like we are seeing perspectives of not the main members of the group, right? Kind of like the the edges of the group. And I think that's a really interesting way to view the events that go down in each one of these interludes. 
Yeah, I, I, I said that. Like, I'm not sure side piece is necessarily so powerless, but she's definitely not, uh, you know, lieutenant rank like like Nailbiter is. She's just sort of a henchman, and right. I, I like that. You know, I like that we're 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 actually getting perspectives on the the main characters, like like Love Lost and so forth, from like a much lower t- tier in the organization. Yeah. Yeah. So Darlene passively observes the group dynamic at first, demonstrating a precocious degree of awareness of subtext and social cues. For example, she's able to read Tattletale's compliment to Foil as being insincere. Yeah, so I, I love Darlene. Like I love this Darlene chapter generally, but I really enjoy that aspect of her as a character, right? This kind of hyper aware, hypersensitive to uh, reading people way she is. And like it makes a lot of sense given her power, right? That that would be just her natural way is she can read things in people because she's doing that via her power all the time. But I think it also allows Wildbo to do some really clever things in this chapter. Like it allows him to show certain things about characters that we either might have known before or weren't sure about, or that is just kind of new information because we're seeing it at, at, at we're looking at them from an angle of someone who uh, is hyper aware and able to see things. And I think this first moment here, the one that you're talking about with with the fact that she's able to read Tattletale's compliment as being insincere, that's something that we already knew about, right? That's something that like through the Tattletale chapter um, and through the their interactions throughout the story, we we know that she has a kind of like uh, hatred or not hatred might be strong. She has a, a complex relationship with Foil and a lot of frustration there. And by kind of showing us that Darlene picks up on this thing about Tattletale, we know uh, the book has basically uh basically introduced and tested how perceptive they that she actually is right um it it gives her credentials in this observation because here's the thing we the reader knew about Darlene's just confirmed that now we know okay she really is perceptive perceptive she really does pick up on this stuff yeah that's a really good point because i was i was on the reread especially noticing that the actual like verbiage that tattletale uses is not obviously backhanded and sarcastic like like we don't know the voice that she said it in necessarily, but Darlene sees right through it and she knows the context and she kind of, like you said, she's aware of other people where their heads are at. Her power lets her know where their bodies are at. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, like I said a minute ago, the cool thing about these, these choices of characters is that they're giving us kind of a perspective on the kind of more important, if you will, characters, from the perspective of someone who those characters would tend to disregard. Yeah. Like Love Loss doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about side piece, I would imagine. Uh, <laughs> I think you're probably right. Yeah. That'll deal, you know, thinks of Darlene as like one of the heartbroken probably. Yeah. Her, her focus, especially we see in this chapter, her focus like is, is almost entirely Aiden focused. I mean, she says that she's here to look after the kids and I think she is including Darlene and the rest of them in that, that group. But her primary, primary focus in this whole thing is Aiden. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so she then continues to ruminate on uh, on when Papa was in a black mood, a term which emerges in her thoughts more than once in this chapter. Mm-hmm. The toxicity of the current environment reminds her of the toxicity of being with the heartbroken under Heartbreaker. Yeah, and I think what we've done now is we've just established that uh, Darlene is this very perceptive little girl. She's able to read moods and read people's attitudes very well. And then we've moved straight from that into this look into this, this 
window into just how fucking bad everything is. Right. Like and, and really, when you think about it objectively, everything is bad. Like the undersiders are fleeing and desperate breakthrough and Victoria are like desperately trying to prevent whatever March's plan here is. And things just aren't going well at all. Like everything keeps going wrong. We just had an interlude where where one of our teams got defeated. Victoria and company barely escaped from their fight. Um, everyone everything's bad everyone's in shitty moods everyone's a little bit snippy at each other and darlene definitely feels like she's in the middle of it and i think relating it back to to heartbreaker which is a person we know is awful is just a really great way to uh conceptualize just how bad every like a bad state everyone's in right now yeah and it also gives you a lot of empathy for her in this moment where you you may not necessarily know where you stand on darlene yet um, but now you're like, OK, this this girl is um, she, she's someone who who wants everyone to get along and be happy and be friends. Yeah. And it, it actually hurts her that everyone is being so shitty to each other. Yeah. And um, and that just kind of immediately puts you on her side. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's this little beat here that I, I really loved, too, is where she's in the middle of, of, you know, exploring just how bad everything is. And and we see Tattletail briefly met Darlene's eyes, her fingers still busy tapping and clicking at the disc. And it's just this wonderful moment where, you know, it's like something in, in what Darlene was doing, her body language or something like hit Tattletail with a dose of her power and what she's reading you know what's going through her head right now and it's just like this little fun moment where you like you you see her power work again and then you see like like how aware tattletale must be at at just the bad state of everything too yeah i I love that moment too because it it's tattletale briefly met darlene's eyes and then so like that necessarily means that she looked at her probably got a reading and then went back to what she was doing so so like whatever she saw and it probably was basically some negative thing that Darlene was thinking. Tattletale didn't say anything about it. She just, yeah. And, and I mean, I understand like you can't stop every time you, your power throws something at you, but, um, she's, you get the sense like she's used to getting these little hits, uh, and, and, and not only used to getting them, but used to being unable to do anything about them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So this third of the team, uh, Tattletale, Capricorn, Sveta, Juliet, Chicken Little, and Darlene, discuss whether to go help Victoria's team because they have lost contact with them. Uh, Juliet and Tattletale bicker about Juliet's being a spoiled brat. Uh, it's pretty funny, actually. Uh, <laughs> Juliet tries to play the I'm an adult, I do what I want card, and then immediately backpedals to I'll do what you say as long as I keep getting free stuff. Yeah, there's a really, there's like a lot of stuff going on in this little scene, though, Matt. I mean, it's like this little tiny scene in this chapter, but there's a lot of stuff we're doing here. I like Tattletale briefly plays the mom a little bit here. Um, like, I think this is very much a conversation that you could see going on between a parent and their child, right? Like, it's like, oh, you want to be a kid when it comes to getting all this stuff and not having any responsibility. But the second you don't want to do something, suddenly you're too old to be told what to do. I mean, that's a very I feel like that's something my mom literally said to me when I was a teenager. Um, but then we like quickly see that it's not exactly the mom relationship, because like by the end of it, Lisa goes, oh, you're supposed to be imp's problem. And she kind of just shoves dealing with it off to we're going to talk to imp about this later so she's more like like annoyed aunt lisa who's exhausted with your shit juliet yeah right 
Yeah, I agree. And then and then we get this little bit where we see Juliet as this person that's like super ready and willing to kill people, which is always fun. And Tattletail shoots that down, though. Tattletail's response is, I want to see less people dead, not more, um, which is like a, a really great you know way to frame Tattletail in this whole thing. Like we've been in Victoria's mindset for a very long time, and she's very naturally distrustful of Tattletail as a person. Um, and, and as much as you can disagree with her methods and her rationality at times, um, I think at the end of the day, she is trying to generally not result in bad things happening. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess it, that just reminds me, like throughout this chapter, we just see this kind of beaten down and joyless tattletale. You know, yeah. I, I don't think we've seen at all in Ward the, the tattletale who who experiences that like joy of the fight you know, yeah. where, where like even if she was ruining somebody's life, she would actually be smiling and, and kind of enjoying the cops and robbers like like duel with the heroes, the, the battle of wits that that just has not been in this story at all. And it, it it's I don't know, for some reason it feels particularly well, I think I know why it's because something horrible happens to her. Um, but it's it's just like this is the culmination of everything that's happened in, in Ward is just this isn't fun for her anymore. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of crazy. I mean, like she was in really, really, really bad shape um, like an arc ago. Right. And things have really only gotten worse since then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We we saw in her head we 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 got where she was. And from the outside, it's we're constantly reminded of the fact that that is where she is. Yeah. So uh, and, and part of me, part of me wonders, though, how Victoria would have reacted to that statement. Right. Like I want to see less people dead, not more. Like if we were in Victoria's head and she was here in the scene, would she have just like been like, yeah, OK, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe that's putting that's putting too much on Victoria, but I feel like she would like scoff quietly at that. Yeah, she would have some reaction. You know, I feel like she's given Tattletale a bit more leeway since they decided mm-hmm. to join up to join forces. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. So Aiden and Darlene, um, who are the only two who are linked using her sensory power right now, threaten to go bail out Victoria's team themselves. Um, and they do an extremely elaborate fist bump combo, <laughs> leveraging Darlene's power to enhance their coordination uh, everything so like everyone admits that this is really cool and it makes Darlene implode with squee yeah I mean it's like it's it's really it is actually pretty cool because it's like entirely no look right like they're they're at least Darlene is looking at Tattletail as she does it um yeah. so it's like she's not even looking and they're yeah they're using the power um I I love this yeah. <laughs> I really love it um and the, the thing that really jumps out here though is this this idea that her and Aiden are just constantly networked via her power. Um, they're not in battle right now. Um, they're they're just kind of hanging out trying to decide what to do. There's no real tactical reason for them to be linked up. It's just something she wants to do, and he kind of likes it too. So that's just what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me. I mean, they're, they're they're actually younger than I'm imagining, but yeah, I'm, I'm remembering like in freshman high school age where there will be the couples and they're just like constantly <laughs> holding hands like it, yeah, and, yeah. and they're in school so they can't PDA too hard but there's just like the constant holding hands that's kind of what this is it's not quite PDA though because there's not that element there's not that like tone to it yeah. but it's definitely just like a level of of contact that is very extreme and borderline too much yeah well and it, it's I mean like I think I think that's a really great analogy but it's almost like holding hands times a million because it is like very intimate. I mean, they are a hundred percent aware of every part of each other's bodies. Um, and it's just like, that's, 
there these i think she's like she's what 10 years old um that's a lot that's a lot for 10 year olds <laughs> yeah right yeah um there is something else i want to introduce here though because i think this is a beat we see uh, a little bit later in the chapter so i wanted to bring it up here um when explaining like why he feels like they need to go out to help the other team there's there's something aiden said says here and it's very specifically if someone's going to get hurt and my friends are there i have to be there aiden said i have to I have to. Well, we'll see this phrase again before the chapter is up. And it's and it's an interesting way to frame choices. Right. Um, I think we'll we'll see it again and again that this idea that you don't have a choice, like it's not actually a choice. I I'm not choosing to be this way. I'm not choosing to do this. I have to do it. Um, And so let's just set that up and put a pin in it and come back to it at the end of this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to set another related thing up, there's this element of of choice or or not choice being set up. um, And that's going to, I think we'll, we'll see that in a few places and we'll be sure to flag it. Sure. Yeah. So eventually Capricorn shifts uh, to Tristan and we realize that he's been Byron this whole time, which um, I think we should have realized because he's like being quiet and reserved, but that yeah. doesn't mean I necessarily did because I still think of him as Tristan by default because <laughs> I'm bad. Um, and uh, so Tristan suggests that they couldn't make it to Victoria's team in time, even if they wanted to, even if they left now. So they should accomplish their mission here in order to gain leverage that might help out Victoria's team there. Yeah. So I want to I want to zoom in on the the sudden shift to Tristan, though, and that that realization that um, he's actually been Byron the whole time. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think you should feel too bad about making that mistake because I, I I almost think the book is intentionally misdirecting you a bit there. Yeah. Um, because if you look earlier in the chapter, Darlene describes Capricorn. She's she's looking at this and says Capricorn was pretty cool, but a, in a bit of a chevalier way. And then describes him as having a cool mystique with an emphasis on the cool. And look, I don't want to be overly unkind to Byron. I love Byron. Byron's great. But when you heard Capricorn be described as chevalier like and having a cool mystique. Were you thinking Byron? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's funny because later later on when when she connects to him, she describes his body as as being like strong and like a man's and he's and he's like carrying this heavy armor. And and again I was like but I thought I, I that's how I think of Tristan and then I was like, <laughs> well it's kind of funny because they have the same genetics. Right. Just Tristan's like a bit stronger. Yeah. P- probably I mean, I don't know. We haven't got that detail of a of a description, but I imagine they're actually pretty physically similar. Yeah, I mean Tristan's Tristan is stronger, but that strong that strength is not from like I have bigger muscles. It's his power. His power mm-hmm. has a little bit of strength to it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I this is this is a really cool misdirect, and it kind of like it, it's using your assumptions combined with the fact that we've just establishes established Darlene's bona fides as um, a hyper observant, hyper aware person to kind of reveal some stuff about Byron that our perception of Byron as this, as the weaker one, as uh, the less cool one was something built by kind of how they interact with people and how people interact with them and not necessarily an accurate reflection of who they actually are as people. And I really think that's just really cool. Yeah. Also, you know, you're making me realize like, so I wanted to say like, also I think the text tends to treat uh, Tristan as the default Capricorn brother, 
and and then I was like, actually, th- the text doesn't do that, but yeah. I think Victoria does. And Victoria, true, yeah. Victoria is the main point of view. So so like for the longest time, Byron was sort of not really part of the team. And it was just basically if she was thinking of Capricorn, she was really thinking of Tristan. And she and Victoria herself would like specify in her thoughts if it was Byron. Yeah. But Tristan is the default state. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not in Victoria's head. So why would that why would that default assumption persist? Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's pretty cool, actually. It's, it's really cool. And I think it's going to matter. Um, a little bit, because I think for some reason, by the end of this chapter, um, we're going to be seeing a lot of Byron and not so much Tristan. Tristan. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, so I like this bit. <laughs> just it's just funny. Juliet's good at cape stuff. Aiden said she says she likes watching people die. I'd say listen to her unless people might die. Caching goddess, Capricorn <laughs> muttered, looking at Tattletail for confirmation, which he didn't give. Can't be simple. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. This poor exasperated Caching goddess. Yeah. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, it, 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 it does another thing, though. It kind of causes Darlene to go on a little bit of a tangent herself, where she discusses uh, can't be simple with Tattletail either. Um, and we learn that just like Tattletail did with Aiden and Lookout, Tattletail wanted to split up Darlene and Aiden as well uh, as part of his punishment. Um, and she basically talked Tattletail out of it. She gave a very convincing argument as to actually, no, it's it's better when I'm with him because I can keep him safe. And the thing you're mostly concerned about is keeping him safe. And it works. But the end of this thought is this really uh, interesting beat where she says Tattletail had agreed points for that. But she wanted to separate them, and Darlene would remember that for a while. So <laughs> we've talked a lot about the hope, heartbroken in general, and Darlene specifically, how there's these moments where they come off as this adorable group of kids, where they're played for comedy, and they're really funny, and like not, they don't have a lot of filter, and it's really funny and silly. Um, but underneath all that is this like really, really creepy shit. <laughs> yeah. We've seen that with Juliet in this very chapter, and I think that's what this passage is doing for me with Darlene. There's like this cute little kid that has this cute little crush on on Aiden, and isn't it just adorable how much they like each other and and they're being connected? And then uh, also, if you try to take um, him away from me, I'm going to remember that for a long time. Yeah, right. I mean, because fundamentally, she is she is a little girl. She has the like emotional development of of a of a child but then like kind of stirred in with that is deep trauma often specifically regarding personal relationships yeah and that manifests in these really quite wonderfully cre- creepy little asides or i mean i think we're going to get to another one in a moment where yeah. where where it's like um we you 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 realize you realize how off things are. Um, we'll get there in a second, though. So Chicken Little and Darlene cast their votes to actually stay uh, rather than moving to, to support Victoria. It's interesting because as you're reading this bit for the first time, I suppose it seems like a decent choice uh, since we know at this point that it turned out that Victoria's team didn't actually need help. But on the second read through, we realize that them choosing to stick with this mission. Ends real fucking bad. Uh, <laughs> so this moment reads differently. 
Right. And and we obviously can't judge characters based on knowledge that we have and they don't either, you know, through other points of view or through rereads. But um, we are seeing here in this moment that these characters are basically seeing everything around them collapse. Victoria's team is presumably down. They're about to learn here in a couple of paragraphs that Imp's team has been taken down as well. And they kind of realize that the only way out is forward. And whenever you're in a situation like that, it's it's just not a great place to be in. You're like you're, you're forced to push forward on a situation that you're not comfortable with, but it's the only option you have. Um, but they've they've got Tattletail, right, Matt? So mm. like surely she realized something's wrong with enough time to get them out of there. Right. Yeah. Nothing ever sneaks up on old Tattletail. <laughs> um, so this is that moment we were talking about a second ago. Yeah. So Aiden gives her a hug as they're, you know, kind of. Uh, relishing their victory won for them with their with their fist bump Uh, and she thinks about her feelings for him and her own issues and so um basically so so, so this is just a, a passage that i like a lot during that time a year ago in her fucked in the head phase raw instinct had been to quietly hold her breath and only breathe in if he was close anytime she was in his company Smelling him had mingled with the rush of having oxygen again and the dizzying feelings that swam through her. He hadn't noticed because as much as her education and things had been a flood of too much, his had been too little. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, boy. So, so I think we were talking about this earlier. This this idea that the first time that idea is mentioned, you're like, you think of it as like, oh, yeah, kid, kids can be kids can be ridiculous with their crushes. Right. Um, and then it kind of you, you 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 take it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that I, I think you're 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 absolutely right that like it, it comes off as a very like cheesy kid romantic thing to do. Right. Like some level of when I'm with when I'm not with you, I can't breathe type of thing. Um, and then you kind of realize that she means uh literally like literally doesn't breathe like there's like like i had to invent excuses to get close to him so i wouldn't pass out or die and it's like she was literally holding her breath constantly when he wasn't around and i mean on the one hand you know she she refers to this as like past tense right like this is when i was in my fucked in the head phase i i am better than this version of me i have i have gotten over that um on the other part it's like (laughs) I'm still like deeply worried about this, this like this extremely unhealthy attachment, even if even if you've moved past that particular part of it doesn't mean that like the the attachment is just suddenly good now. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that word attachment, because I was thinking like attachment disorders, which that's kind of a different usage of the word than the colloquial usage. But like Mm -hmm. an attachment disorder is is something that can go badly wrong with with the child that is abused. Um, we know that that at some point she was she was chained up or restrained um, because she has a terrible reaction to it when that happens later or when yeah. that's threatened to happen later. And one might even suspect that that has to do with her trigger event. And like to to chain up is to attach, right? So right. If, if we're being shardy and metaphorical about it, it's almost like what her power does is it attaches her to people um, in in a way that is just as overwhelming as being attached to a wall presumably was for her. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's not good. It's yeah. ma- makes the problem ironically permanent. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the thing that the, the, the text does really well is kind of emphasize um, 
that that even if even if she's referring to this as past tense, um, the 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 attachment is still very 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 much there. Like I love this part. Like after they finished the hug, Aiden broke away, leaving her with only the warmth on the one side, leeching away in the cold. Like just the usage there. Like the the warmth that he left was leeching away in the cold. That the the second he breaks free from her or he moves away from her, like cold leeches away that feeling. Um, it is is very like indicative of an unhealthy level of love attachment. And I, I just love how the, the text supports that. Like, like it, obviously we're in Darlene's head here, so it's never like explicit, right? Like we've never like the text never says this is bad. This is dangerous. Um, but, but so Wildbo has to be clever here and, and do it subtextually. And there's these moments and like the ones we've been talking about all chapter that I think are reinforcing that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. That's great. Yeah. Before we move on, I just did want to say that Aiden like casually makes three birds like land on his outstretched arm. And like, you know, I think they have cameras on already or if not, he fits them with cameras. And I think we've been talking about this a few times before, but we're like just kind of casually, quietly watching Aiden's power get better, Um, like moving to a level where he's able to individually control birds better than he used to be able to. And it's like simultaneously amazing and terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't catch that as as being um, an example of his power getting better necessarily, but uh, yeah, sure. Like it's it's cool to see that kind of thing, little little details. So, um, just I'm just kind of as we go through mentioning that it seems like we're seeing the Capricorn brothers switching out pretty frequently, um, just kind of easily handing control back and forth, almost like you're seeing them just kind of think, I don't really have anything to add right now, but maybe my, my brother does. Yeah. And it's something that I've kind of always had in the back of my mind that there's so many potential advantages to them being cooperative like this. Like, like for example, one subtle advantage of the power is like you always have somebody watching over your shoulder from a detached perspective, able to think things through, able to notice things that you didn't necessarily notice. And if you're willing to be open to their input and, and you're willing to switch frequently and be be um, kind of casual about it, then it seems like th- there's just a lot of advantages that could be accrued there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's cool because, like, I agree with you. It sh- it shows like a, a a symbiosis between the two of them, um, and it shows like not only that that they're they're considering the other brother because I think I, I think you're absolutely right that 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 idea of I don't have anything to add, uh, maybe my brother does, is what is going through their heads. But that means they're thinking about each other. It means that Tristan is saying, "I wonder what what Byron thinks about this situation," which is very good progress. <laughs> it's yeah. very good. Um, and I think it's like, it's like especially great. And I'm glad you pointed out here because it would be certainly a shame if something came along and just fucked all that up, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. They've, they've been doing so well. They've made such great progress. Um, they seem to be getting along generally. I'm sure it's still very hard, but, um, it's been, it's better, it seems. And it's, let's, let's just, maybe we'll just skip that part. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing will come along and make it harder for them. I'm sure. Right. Absolutely. So we get this bit where Rachel calls Tattletail on the phone, uh, which leads to a great interaction in which Tattletail is very annoyed. <laughs> I was so happy with the scene um, because I love Rachel. Um, and it turns out it was actually just a, a, a primer for the next chapter when Rachel is back in full force and it's the greatest scene ever. So um, maybe we'll just skip ahead to that because that makes me happy. Just, let's do that. Yeah, skip, yeah. Skip skipping, right there. skipping into middle of the next chapter now. All right. In sweet. Three, two, one. No, sorry. 
Oh. We won't be spared this. Um, bummer. Um, so here, Tattletail also learns that the other team was taken down by Love, Love Lost. This seems to be enough of a foothold for Tattletail's power to tell her the extra information that they're currently surrounded by nine or ten parahumans. Oh, I love how quickly it shifts, right? Like she's having this casual kind of funny conversation with Rachel that it's like it's played as a humorous beat. And then suddenly she goes, we're surrounded battle mode. And it's almost so jarring, not only to us, but to the characters, right? Because she has to repeat herself. She's like, I'm I'm serious battle mode right now. And then and then the second time is when everyone like starts to spring into action. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because. Um, based on kind of how everything had been going in the story up until, uh, up until this point, I was like ex- expecting this, right? Like, yeah. like uh, you, the, the, you, the reader are in this place where you're like, they're going to get ambushed. They're probably going to get beat down pretty bad. And, and, and it's, and it's just going to be Victoria's team left. Like that's, that feels yeah. kind of like the, the narrative move to, to make here. Um, so while it is a, a big, a big shift in tone, it wasn't necessarily a surprising one. No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I didn't know I didn't know it was going to go exactly like this, but yeah, right. I mean, especially like I feel like the two interludes in a, in, a, in a row and we switch between the two teams. It's like we're taking pieces off the board mm-hmm. um, specifically to lead to a climax. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Well said. Uh, I just like this bit. Darlene reached into her coat, pulling out a mask. Imp had supplied them and they were all built around the theme Darlene didn't even remember Jean-Paul, but apparently that was the style that they were matching to. I mean, it makes me so sad that she doesn't remember him, but it makes me so happy that Imp is still carrying on his legacy in in some small way. Right. I mean, it's it's so cool to to be able to then imagine the heartbroken running around in their masks that that are all based on his mask and and that it's, yeah, just reminding you of Regent. It's for you, buddy. Yep. I just looked at my ceiling. I forgot you can't see me. <laughs> I was up there in up there in region heaven. Yeah. Pour one out. <laughs> Gonna pour one out. Uh the team flees into an exp- ex- expansive concrete university structure with uh several levels, long hallways, wide su- wide stairwells. Uh, I found this environment very easy to imagine. Um it's it's Heldenfels, Scott. You can't like <laughs> This is such a fucking deep cut reference that even I barely know what you were talking about. Well, that's at least one person who will get it. <laughs> For everyone uh, listening to this podcast right now, Heldenfelds is a building on the main campus of Texas A&M University that Matt spent a lot of time in. I think I had one class there. Um, I don't even remember what class it was, but... Yeah, I had a few. It's but, just uh, it's ridiculous. It's so deep. Yeah, that, that's, where this, that's where this battle happened. There you go. There's any all of our listeners that went to AM, it's in your head now. Yep. All of you. All <laughs> one of I think we had one at some point. I don't remember at who least, it was. At least one or two. Yeah. yeah. Uh Darlene offers to connect everyone since they're all running. Um and basically everyone kind of <laughs> first they're they're like, um, what does it entail exactly? Uh, sort of understandably hesitant and skeptical about the heartbroken using her power on them. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, Chicken Little kind of uh, stands up for her and is like, um, you know, it's don't worry about it. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting, though, right? Because like um, he stands up for her. Um, he says he he trusts her with his life, with her, her his life. Um, and it, like 
it that leaves her flummoxed is the word she uses to describe it um because she's like if he had gone further if he had said something further i i would have almost cried i'd been so happy it would have been the warmest i've ever felt but because he stopped there i feel flummoxed um which is an interesting reaction because it's like give me more like i want i want you to profess your love for me or yeah. something yeah th- th- that's where my mind went to like like was she imagining him like turning to her and being like in fact I love her, you know? Yeah. And then the music swoons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, But the the interesting part about this though, is that when he says that, when he says I've trust is earned, she's earned her trust. I trust her with my life. Juliet's reply is dumb. And then uh, we see this part. Darlene wheeled on her cousin. Juliet's face was hidden by her mask, but even without the mask, even with Darlene able to feel every inch of Juliet's face, forcing the sensation to being, she couldn't feel the slightest of twitches or movements. So this is like um, Juliet wasn't like fucking around, wasn't like doing this to to make her mad and like and like laugh about how funny it's being. Like, I feel like Juliet in this moment is dead fucking serious mm-hmm. that trusting Darlene is dumb and she's not kidding. She's fully, fully means that. And this is, again, one of those little beats that I think just that reinforces this this general idea of uncomfort of of, you know, this is this this girl and, and she's great in a lot of ways. But there's this this through line underneath it all. That's just like, Ugh. yeah, almost like we're setting up to get some rather extreme behavior from her Uh, almost yeah Yeah. so yeah um first capricorn agrees to be connected and darlene's able to see the frozen form of the dormant capricorn brother uh which is interesting because i i don't i think you actually picked this out in a way where i kind of understood what was going on and we talked about it this idea that like yeah the the frozen robot body of the other brother is actually like adjusting its footing in, in small movements so that Basically, so that whenever they switch back, the other one doesn't immediately fall down. Yeah, um, was my interpretation. Yeah, I completely agree. Like that. I mean, this is what it says here and there: feet and legs were moved instead of moving on their own, always maintaining a workable footing. So yeah, that, I mean, that completely kind of gives the science behind why, when they're switching over, why he's always like always in a, a balanced place and that's i mean that's like a, a real interesting window into how this whole works like this is this whole thing works this is the first time we've gotten a glimpse of what's happening to the subbed out brother right like what's happening when they're in this other place um and and it's it's like it's really interesting details because like she feels his brain his brain feels warm in his head so like he exists like on another plane of existence i guess or something it's it's like it's just really complex and like this is i think our first real window into that and the implications of this going forward with her able to sense this other person could be very interesting. Yeah. It reminds me of Kinsey's desire to make a camera that could see the other brother. Like that's kind of what this is in a way. Yeah. And so then of course the other, she, she joins Sveta into the, into the link and everyone gets an impression of the wild chaos and, and violence of Sveta's body. And, um, likewise, of course, Tristan and Byron can feel everyone else, including Sveta, um, and Sveta can feel all of their normal human bodies, and um, yeah. and it's it's uh, it kind of knocks everybody on their heels for a second. Yeah, I, I, Sveta is saying it's like she describes it as nostalgic, right? Yeah, and that's just fucking heartbreaking. Like, I mean, I think in this moment she's like just enjoying it, but on, on some level it's just like, oh. <laughs> You poor girl. Um, yeah, I had kind of forgotten that she had memories of having um, a human body. Yeah. 
And yeah. even though I think there's like a hint that those memories have been implanted, but she has them yeah. nonetheless. Yeah. Well, and I guess we have to talk about the fact that with this Tristan and Byron craziness is that they can feel each other, right? Yeah. That they like, like it's, it's like a real interesting wrinkle on in their relationship where here, even in this, this artificially, you know, networked state, they are actually feeling each other. Um, and that's like, once again, I think that's like, it's like we're, we're moving them towards a point of full symbiosis and understanding. And we're just going to literally, uh, rip that up part yeah possibly possibly that's speculation but yeah yeah right uh tattletale then leads the group through the building uh, but quickly realizes that they're being boxed in she can tell which enemies are in which direction so she so the team elects to head for Cretan and lion wing but cradle and paris are also with them tattletale is mad about this because the only reason her assessment was wrong is that victoria interfered with the payment so the setup here is really cool, right? The, the team is being surrounded and they have these three bad choices to choose from. We got Cradle, we got March, or we've got some trained, terrible, organized killers. And that's like the least bad choice is the the, the trained assassin killer guys. So they're like, OK, uh, let's go that way. Um, and then, of course, yeah, it backfires. And I love that, like, I think like. Tattletale and Victoria's relationship is so complicated, right? Like we, they, they are not very charitable to each other, but they've been like moving towards this like grudging work togetherness. But I love in this moment, like Tattletale is like so pissed off, and it's like you can't really blame her for this. He's like, I'm not blaming her. I'm just stating facts. And it's like she should have like I can't, you can't do my stuff without all this information. And people are like, well, the the lines are cut. Like, there's no way she could have let you know. I know, I know that. It's yeah. just like she realizes she's being unreasonable, but she just can't help herself. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so it it's on one level, it's it's a little bit funny because I don't know, it's funny whenever she gets mad, I guess. But but also, um, her her frustration is understandable because. This is all she can contribute here. Yeah, is yeah. the information, and she's trying to guide them through this situation that's really quite stacked against them. Actually, I mean, it's it's almost it's it's an ambush that's been set up specifically yeah. to to destroy them, and she's giving wrong answers. She's giving wrong directions because yeah. her readings are wrong. So the frustration is understandable. It absolutely is, and she wants she wants to direct that wherever she can. And uh, <laughs> Victoria is a very easy target. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Juliet is able to use her mutual paralysis technique on Paris, giving Capricorn the opportunity to beat him up, slugging his ribs and jaw with gauntleted fists. Uh, but Capricorn refuses to pull down the heavy lockers on Paris's head, instead choosing to retreat. So this is really, really, really important, um, I think. I think we need to spend a sufficient amount of time on this because I think this is a big deal. Because he chooses to not go so far here, right? He chooses not to hurt Paris to this extreme level. He chooses like this could have possibly killed him. Yeah. And he chooses not to do it. He, he has the opportunity and he specifically says no. And our darling and our point of view character can't understand why he would do something like that. And I think we kind of understand why that is uh, by the end of this chapter. But, but let's look at like Capricorn here a bit because because we're in Darlene's perspective, because we're in Darlene's point of view, we don't get specifically told which brother this is. Um, it's just Capricorn. But the moment immediately preceding this moment, we're seeing blue moats and water. Uh, the moment almost immediately after this moment is uh, is some blue moats and water. So 
it is reasonable to make the assumption here, I think, that it is Byron in this moment that makes this decision. Um, though they do switch out a lot. So that's not like you can't make it. Uh, you can't make a 100 percent conclusion there. Right. Yeah. Now, Byron doesn't exactly like Paris either, but it's really Tristan who has like the the vendetta against the guy for very, very understandable reasons. So we I think we got to interpret this from either angle, right? I think that's the safest thing to do because we don't know 100% which brother it was. Yeah, right. I, I I was, I think I assumed it was Tristan actually on my first read through because I was reading too fast as always. Um, <laughs> and, and I was like, well, it makes sense that it would be Tristan who would kind of hold back because, because you would think that Tristan might have uh, some guilt here because he, he literally framed this guy for murder. <laughs> right. I mean, he hated him, but then he framed him for murder. So, so I don't know, I, I, especially for a guy who's trying to make amends for his past mistakes. It seems like he would be he'd be eager almost to hold himself back from doing more damage than he needed to do. And I guess from Byron's side, um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost just like Byron's not the kind of guy who would just like like maim someone right. because he had a free shot at them. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the happy answer is this is Tristan, right? Like the the good, positive um, steps to recovery answer that we want it to be is that this was Tristan. uh, He was in control and he made that choice. He made the conscious choice. um, And that shows how far he's come, how how much he's doing, how better he's doing. That's great. It gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's it's wonderful. Um, If it was Byron. I could see a scenario here in which Tristan is furious at Byron for not taking that shot or 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 not swapping out to him to give him the opportunity to make that decision. You know, yeah, I can see I can see a version of Tristan who is furious at his weak brother who wasn't willing to do what needed to be done or uh, didn't at least give him the opportunity to make that call and how that could spiral, especially when you combine uh, being chopped in half, which is about to happen. You combine those two things against together and that could be a, a, a fissure in the relationship that that takes back a lot of the hard work that these characters have have done. And that's bad. And I don't want I don't want it to be that. Yeah, I don't. But I could see it. I could see it. Yes, I'm I'm eager for that to not be the case. Um, you, know, you know, so before uh, whoever it is, you know, I, I let's go with Byron just for the sake of argument before Byron refrains from crushing Paris with, with lockers. He says no. Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible he's saying no. Like so Paris can hear him like articulate like i'm i'm intentionally choosing to not crush you but i al- i feel like it's pretty likely that he's saying it to tristan he's yeah. he's expressing like no i'm not going to do this and i i honestly don't know where Tr- where exactly tristan would fall on this but i i this is one one thing i'm kind of eager to find out like what the what the next what the next step is in this whole yeah. not just not just the brother's relationship, but like specifically where things stand with Paris, because that's, that's such a complicated knot of, of history there. Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal that they choose to do this here, especially in a chapter where other characters are not going to choose to do this. So, I mean, I, I agree. And, and 
But the other thing we have to remember is that they're linked, they're networked together right now. They they can feel each other. And now that doesn't mean they can hear each other or um, or anything like that. But um, the, the person pocketed always feels everything that the person in front feels. Mm-hmm. But the person in front for the first time at least feels the existence of the other one. And I wonder how that is tying into this decision. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I, I Yeah. Well, we'll just have to see. I am, I am interested to find out. Yeah, absolutely. So side piece emerges um, to join the battle, uh, casting Woody repartee before her as she as she comes. <laughs> so good. Yeah, uh, and she creates a fire, which Juliet then freezes her standing near, causing her to be well. First, she's not burned at first. She's not burned until Darlene shoves her into the fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you just mentioned the idea of people holding back and people not holding back and By- Byron slash Tristan, whoever it was, did hold back from maiming. We talked last week actually about this idea of Lord of Lost could have just like pulped every member of the team he was fighting, but, but he held back. He even stopped what he thought was Victoria about to break off her own leg, um, I think that there's a, an interesting thing happening here where the cops and robbers game has broken down over, over basically this arc. Yeah. And now that we're, now that we're outside of the, the bumpers of, of the cops and robbers game, you never really know whether the person you're fighting is going to hold back. And so you can't really justify holding back. And thus there's this race to the bottom where the people who are holding back lose and then everyone just learns to stop holding back. And like that's this is kind of the worst outcome possible that Tattletail has kind of always been afraid of and Victoria's kind of always been afraid of in a different way. And I think we're seeing it happen. We're about to see even worse things happen. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think that's what we're doing here. Um there there's been too many beats of this over the past few chapters to, that all kind of point towards this um when you're when the rules of the game collapse and therefore everyone's playing by different rules. Um, the cruelest wins and um, that's like e- even if you even if you can completely justify the violence and I think you can in in some cases um, it, it is it is a race to to bad <laughs> to real bad yeah yeah and 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 I don't think it's an accident here that we we directly contrast these two moments we have this moment where um, Tristan slash Byron Capricorn chooses not to go all out um, and then Darlene chooses to and she'll do it again before the chapter's out um that that, that she's there's really no hesitation on her on her part she casually pushes side piece into the fire um and then she like jumps on her to use her as like a stepping stone to get around other parts of the fire um like we we she calls about the the imagery of like the carpet is lava this very childish game and it's this like i think that that's this is wonderful contradiction of of her being this 10 year old kid who's so like the carpet is lava the carpet is lava but also i'm doing these things <laughs> these very serious things um and that that contradiction i think is you know her character yeah 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 and like and like like look how casual it is too like it's it i think that's one thing we we need to keep focus on throughout all of these things it's not just what darlene is doing and if the thing she is doing is justified or not it's how she is doing it like i I love the text says like 
side pieces in the fire uh, and then Juliet releases her and we see this moment where like it released side piece who shrieked like she was being burned alive. And then the next beat is which fair. And that's just like that's just such a casual <laughs> like reference to someone being burned alive. Yeah. Like it's just so casual and uncaring about it. And I'm not saying like like this is your enemy. You're in a fight and they're trying to hurt you. They're, they're flinging fire at you. But it's just so indifferent yeah and and you know the story has has set up side piece as this character who's not wholly undeserving of empathy um yeah she she has her own complex inner life and reasons for doing things um and now she probably has third degree burns all over her legs so i mean we don't know that necessarily but like lying in a pool of burning propellant yeah it's gonna it's gonna do some damage yeah, I mean, we don't like the, the the thing is like we know she has like kind of superhuman healing in a way because, you know, that's how her insides come back. But right. we don't know how that works on the rest of her body. So there is no real indication here that, oh, she's just going to heal magically from this and be fine now. Yeah, right. I I, I suspect not. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, so what happens next is Cretan. I don't know if I'm saying that word right, but it's from the island. It's basically the island of Crete, right? So Cretan. Yeah. Yeah. Cretan uses his power and it takes me a little bit to understand what's going on. Um, although it makes perfect sense when you're rereading. He's he's basically made the place into like an Escher non-Euclidean maze. And of course, he's the Minotaur. That's the reference. Yeah. Uh, so his power causes Darlene to be separated from the team uh, where she's cornered by Operator Red, uh, which is in the, in the in that moment of the story, you're like, oh, Christ. Uh, and, and he slides her handcuffs and tells her to cuff herself. Yeah, it, it took me a, a little bit to figure out what was going on with him as well. But I think once you do figure out, I love this power. I love the idea of it. Um, like it's the Minotaur charging through the Escher maze. It's it's so wonderful. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's get on to the main event. Operator Red, a.k.a. Annalise. Right, Matt? That, <laughs> right, that's, that's right. That's who it is. Yep, that's I definitely think who it is. Annalise is going to weirdly be... Uh, declared MIA after this chapter. <laughs> so I, I, before we move on, I think we need to circle back to something you mentioned earlier because we're kind of here now is that we don't learn Darlene's trigger event in this chapter, um, but we do get hints of it. And this this absolute refusal to be handcuffed is a very big hint. She can't be tied up. It makes her want to barf. Um, and, and, and that is enough to, I think, what you said earlier, which is kind of start connecting the dots, right? We know kind of about her power. We know how shards work. And, and we see now that like the idea of handcuffing is just like beyond the pale. Like there's no way. Yeah. She's like, I'll, I'll go crazy is what she yeah. says. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just this bit right here that I love. Um, she could feel Capricorn being kicked hard, felt Aiden's back slide against the surface as he, as he tried to make himself small. Ugh. She shook her head. She had to swallow gorge to keep from coughing or vomiting into her mouth. Just the idea of it brought her to that point, made her breathing uneasy. I'd lose my mind. Aiden noticed, turned her way, touching the wall. Uh, he notices her freaking out and just tries to reach out. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's do it. <laughs> yep. And then kind of the awesome, the most, most awesome but terrible thing. Hey, she, are we going to coin a new word yeah, tonight? Let's, I think? Let's, let's do it now. This okay. is the perfect time because this is the this is a dumb word just 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 to preface things. But <laughs> so earlier we were talking about this idea that like 
using the word awesome sounds wrong in certain contexts. Like her, her, this fight that's about to happen, it's like, it's awesome, but it's also kind of horrible and horrifying. And so what what was the word? Was it horrorsome was the word? Horrorsome. 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 Yeah. So this is horrorsome. I I think, I, I think the, the comparison I made was like, you kind of want Hannibal Lecter to escape and you're kind of rooting for him despite all the horrible things he's doing in, yeah. a, in Silence of the Lambs. Like, like it's sort of sick and twisted to like admit that. And, but like, that's like the movie clearly wants you to feel that way. Yeah. Like that's the point of the scene. Um, and likewise here, this is for awesome. Cause it's both of those things. <laughs> Thank you for explaining the word. <laughs> you're welcome. So she connects her power um, uh, sorry, she disconnects her power from the others and then she connects it to operator and thus begins uh, probably one of my favorite fights in all of pair humans. So as Darlene alternates using her power when defending so that operator can feel the pain of all his own attacks and then using things like biting her own tongue, her fingers, uh, cramping her foot uh, and turning on her own power um, when she's feeling pain and turning it off when she's attacking and inflicting pain on him. And she, she eventually gets a hold of one of his knives and then starts to slash at him. He gets in some pretty grievous cuts to her, um, but she just generally uses the pain that they cause to her own advantage. And then in the end, she's able to stab him repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, one of the best fights in all of parahumans is not an exaggeration. I do think this is wonderful. It is, it is whore awesome in every sense of the made up word we just made up. Um, I like it's so much of this is really fantastically written. Right. And it just it just escalates like it's it it starts brutal and then gets worse from there. Like one of the first things she does once she's loose from him is like dislocate the shit out of her finger. Yeah. Um, She just like grabs her finger and pulls it back until something gives is how the text describes it. And it's just like my finger. Yeah. Um, And then it just goes (laughs) from there. Right. That's that's one of the ones where I'm like, I, I think if you were like, Matt, I'll give you. I'll give you a million dollars if you just right now just crank your finger until until it snaps. Oh, my God. I would just be like, I just, I, I'm sorry. I guess I don't get a million dollars. I just shuddered on involuntarily <laughs> just thinking about doing that. that ugh. Yeah, it's no. just one of those things that really suggests how kind of over the edge this this child is. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think this is another great example of what you were talking about earlier. This idea that um, I don't think Operator Red was ready to go full out. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. He starts the thing saying, you know, just tie yourself up. Um, I, I, I don't want to have to kill you. I think he didn't really start to be like, oh, oh crap, I have to kill her until um, until it was too late, until yeah. he realized that she was not playing the same game he was. And that's that's a character not willing to like, I think we were talking about this earlier, and I think you're absolutely right that you said, like, if he had just like from the very start of the fight, just like just cut her throat. Um, it's just end over. Yeah. Um, but because he hesitated, because he wasn't willing to do that, uh, well, guess what? You get to die, and that is that is once again that lesson being imparted to all the surviving people of this world. If you don't go full tilt at all times, you're going to lose, and that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the this moment is um again a very awesome moment, um, where she says. I'm a heartbreaker's kid. I'm not as powerful, but I'm better because he was horrible. He shouldn't have fought me. 
that was stupid. And then a couple paragraphs later, she stabbed him a few more times, trying to hurry him along his way. It didn't really work. It's just so it's just so casually fucked up. Like, I, yeah. I like I, I'm I'd be lying if I said I didn't like like throw my my fist in the air like out of excitement when she won this battle. But yeah, I mean, it's just like so it's so casually brutal, so indifferent, um, like I'm scared for her. I'm scared for Aiden. I'm scared for Kenzie. I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared about all of this. Like, I just like this, this person got in the way of her getting back to her Aiden, right? Like I need to get back to my, I need to get back to my friends. My friends are in trouble. Um, and because he got in her way, he dies. Yeah. And, and what's the next person that gets in her way? You know, like you think back to, I'm not going to forget what the tattletale tried to keep me away from him. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, it's interesting. And my mind didn't go to the connection with Kenzie where Kenzie's kind of her competition. Yeah. And what's funny is I think Kenzie is actually aware of the precarious ground she stands on and is yeah. like, is, is actually kind of willing to be like, he's just my friend. We're just friends. Right. Um, even though, but, Aiden gave her a necklace and everything. Well, yeah, but the problem is that Aiden isn't like we've established in this very chapter that Aiden doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Like he's yeah. so he's so entirely ignorant to all of the workings of this stuff because he's never really been around people in romantic relationships. He's never he's never been been taught either through direct teaching or observation about any of these things. So he's completely ignorant in it. So he might not even be realizing he's doing it, but he's he's like pushing Darlene into a, a jealous rage like that hasn't happened yet but like you see the dotted line there right yeah and it's just like Jesus well I think it's po possible and even likely that he doesn't even realize that she has these insanely strong feelings like because people have been making all these comments I think he's he probably gets that she has a crush on him yeah but this is like the, the crushiest crush that ever crushed and, and i don't know right. if, i don't think he knows that and if he does know it i don't think he's worried enough about it yeah i mean even like, like it's so funny because they are like intimately connected like it seems like most of the time based on this chapter and we have to remember back in his interlude her heavy breathing her heart racing to him was not attraction was not um like she's excited about being around me. It was anger. It was she, she, he, like they are so intimately connected via this network and he is misreading all the signals and she is very much capable of reading the signals. Yeah. And that's just a messy combination. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm worried now. <laughs> all right. So she, she escapes, she uses her power to reconnect to her teammates and track them down in the labyrinth uh, because she knows their position relative to hers. Mm -hmm. First, she manages to find Tristan um, cut in half. Uh, he manages to switch back to Byron, and the two of them next reach the scene of Cradle using his uh, Balrog whip to cut Tattletail into quadrants. Balrog whip, really? I mean, that's how I visualize it. <laughs> I guess. It is red, isn't it? It's It glows. Yeah. So as we wrap up this chapter, I want to go back to that line we talked about earlier, right? I want to go back to the fact that uh, earlier in this chapter, Aiden says, uh, if my friends are in trouble, I have to help them. 
I have to, because there are two instances instances here at the end of this chapter um, that use that phrasing. Uh, one of them, I think, like very directly parallels it and the other not so much. It might be a little stretch, but I, I like it. So I included anyway. Uh, the first we have Darlene with Byron, like this is right after Darlene stumbles upon Tristan. Tristan, like, is desperately trying to make stairs before he switches back to Byron, which is like really fucking tragic, Matt. Like this yeah. idea that like um, I'm in so much pain here. I know I need to switch out, um, but I got to I got to use my power to build these stairs so Byron can get out of here. Um, and I think that that's awful. But anyway, um Byron, when he does get control and he's going with Darlene, he says this phrase, he says, you kids are scary. And Darlene's response is, yes, we have to be. We have to be. And then the last one is this a little bit later when Tattletale is is frantically trying to get Cradle to stop attacking her. So she's like, she's like, you don't want to go this far, she says to him. You don't want to do this. And his reply is, I have to. Aiden has to be there when his friends are in trouble. Darlene has to be scary. Cradle has to be this monster that does this to people. Um, And that's I mean, like, again, I don't I don't know if that's like a specifically designed connection between all these moments, but it's something worth pointing out because it's something we're seeing here is these characters, you know, kind of ruled by not choice, but obligation. Yeah. Or or just feeling like it's inevitable that they have no control. Right. And I think that's interesting how this this concept of not having any choice other than to go forward and, and do the only option uh, interacts with this idea of this race at the bottom of, um, you know, if you're not going to get out of my way, then I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stop. I'm going yeah. to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use lethal force if necessary. Thus, everything just escalates to lethal force and everyone loses. Yeah. I mean, like the thing about this is it I, I think it's kind of bullshit, right? I mean, like I, I'm not going to call it like Aiden, you don't have to help your friends. So that's not. But it, it, using it as an excuse for your behavior is is bullshit. I'm like, no, you don't you don't have to chop people up, Cradle. <laughs> you don't you don't have to. Yeah. But the understanding that, that I think that the, the feeling that these people are feeling is is accurate that, yeah, as we're racing to this bottom, we it's that it's that it's literally a choice of them or me now. And um, that's at least understandable, although yeah, Cradle is a he's a monster. What he is doing is monstrous um, and, and no. Oh, I didn't have a choice is going to relieve him of that. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's like I, I just love that we're seeing these these things kind of coalesce in that way. And that was on my uh, rereads of this chapter. Those I have to moments really, really jumped out at me, whether they were intended to or not. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems intentional when you kind of link it all together like you've done. So that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. So before we move on to the next chapter, at the end here, we learn uh, that Tattletale's organization has, of all things, a mole in it that he's managed to uh, that Cradle has managed to pull a Tattletale and buy off some of her uh, people in her own organization, offering more money and uh, and switching their loyalties. Uh, the very thing she used to take down Coil is the thing that takes her down. Matt, how did how did this happen? How did she miss this? Like the first thing that jumps to mind with maybe too high a degree of of certainty that I'm right is like, well, I think her power has been fucking with her for some time now, actually. And yeah. basically showing her like it's not like I don't think your I don't think your power is happy with her. And so it's showing her the things that 
she needs to see to basically create bad outcomes, not good outcomes, because the powers want conflict and she's trying to she's trying to make things safe and stable. So it's like, I'm going to show you the things that I need to show you to make you mess up this stability that you've achieved so that we can get back into the constant fighting, which is what I'm here for. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think um, this idea of the shards being maybe more active in in encouragement, some of this stuff uh, would be an interesting angle to take. Like, I think like, you know, with with the existence of the entities around, like there's there's a certain inevitability to the end of the world. But now that they're gone, um, it's like it's like, oh, wait, people have the oppor- like there's an opportunity to actually get better. And we're like, fuck, we got to do something about this. And um, I, I wonder if, it, if if there's any truth to that. I don't know. Yeah. If you take it at the metaphorical level of, of like her, her trauma being hurt, kind of need to obsessively think through the the ramifications of every piece of information that she runs across mm-hmm. um, to, to scan it for like, what are the what are the consequences of this? How can I use this to protect the people who are important to me? Um, then it's the sort of thing that becomes self-defeating once you've actually kind of achieved a bit of, a, of stability for yourself, um, where you just start kind of uh, ripping away at the stability you've created for yourself. Like I'm setting aside the, the idea of a shard and just talking about like the personality trait of, of someone who, who kind of obsessively picks at all the information around them. Um, it seems yeah. seems kind of uh, metaphorically and, and character wise, like a logical explanation to me. Yeah, you can never kind of rest on your laurels and that causes you to kind of spread out too far. I mean, that's kind of what we saw here. Like I, I, whether or not it's her shard fucking with her, I think one of the things that happened is she just got too involved in too many different things and she couldn't like it's just like keeping a bunch of plates spinning. Yeah. Actually, one's going to drop and it just so happens to be the worst fucking one. Yeah, right. All right, let's move on to the next chapter and uh, we'll see how Victoria is going to deal with all this stuff. Uh, so at first, though, Victoria's task unit rides in a Merc van smelling of piss hot dogs. <laughs> Gross. Gross. Um, so like we talked about at the beginning of the show, this chapter feels very much like that calm before the climactic storm. The last time we saw Victoria, they had just barely won their fight and were heading probably to help out their friends. And then we cut from that to their friends uh, all getting their asses kicked. <laughs> Both groups just handily defeated. It's now we're now in the point where it's all up to Victoria and rain <laughs> to save the day and the world. <laughs> Oh, I'm so mean to him and I don't even mean to be. He's basically like the kid win of Ward. Right. I mean, that's the the text itself makes him the butt of the joke. So, yeah. So, of course, we will side with the text. So Vista actually calls Vicky as they drive and the two V's commiserate about how nightmarish it is to be a cape. Vista shares her experience of hearing the voices of the dead in her mind for multiple months. Yeah, um, <laughs> I guess this is probably just like a game capes play, right? Like a one up, one up fucked up. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, a, a throat fetus. That's rough. Well, let me tell you about my case of I see dead people itis. That was something. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think like it is worth pointing out, like how abrupt this pivot is. Right. Uh, v- Victoria basically drops this horrible news about something that really bad happened to her and Vista like 
immediately pivots to this really, really bad thing that's happening to her. And I don't think she's doing out of that, that out of insensitivity. Um, she gets through her bad thing and then says like, Oh, how bad was your thing? Like, are you, are you okay? How bad was it? It's just to me that it's like, she's really, really, really been itching to talk about this certain thing that's happened to her. And like, she saw this as maybe an opportunity to do so. And she just jumped on it right away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also like, it just seems to me that this is kind of a a trait of, of friends is like, yeah. Like (laughs) when, when something bad happens to you, you're actually kind of like, Oh, you're not going to believe what happened to me. And then you kind of laugh about it. And then you're like, no, but seriously, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then you commiserate. But like, I don't know, just it seems like a very natural kind of way of of actual friends interacting. Well, plus, I think like something bad happening to your friend, like gives you permission to share your bad shit. Like you don't want to be the friend yeah. that just walks up to your friend and be like, let me tell you about all this bad shit that's been happening to me. Yeah. But it's like if you have an opportunity to be like, oh, something terrible happened to you. Well, I understand because look at this terrible shit that happened to me. And it's much less like a you're just complaining to your friend, whereas like you're, you know, commiserating together. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this feels like. Right. Right. Yeah. So Vista uh, also asks if Victoria needs cape support, uh, but phrases it as like only ask if it's a huge emergency because we're dealing with the world ending time fuckery right now. Yeah. I like this because. Um, what we're doing here is I think really starting to emphasize how alone Victoria and her team are at the moment. Like both of the other two, you know, split up teams have gone. Uh, everyone else is busy. There's not enough people. There's just not enough people. So really, we really are just left up to just this team. It's, it's Victoria, it's rain, it's foil, it's chastity, it's candy. And then, uh, in a little bit, it's Rachel. Uh, that's it. That's all we got. Yeah, right. I mean, we've taken out, we've even taken out Perian, who was with their group. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, uh, Vicky, no, sorry. Uh, Vista asks if she can pass along Victoria's number to Rachel so that the two of them can coordinate. Uh, Victoria asks the needle points if they have any advice on dealing with Rachel. And, uh, Foyle's like, no, not really. And Perian says, don't back down, <laughs> which is really good, good advice. advice. Yeah. Um, so I'm just thinking out loud, but like if, if anybody's going to quickly grasp Rachel's issues, it's going to be Cape nerd extraordinaire Victoria Dallin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that because I think like we saw last book that Taylor was able to figure it out, you know, using her special set of skills and Victoria using her special set of skills would probably be able to, to crack the Rachel puzzle as well. Um, and it's cool. Yeah. That's just a little connection between those two characters. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's interesting. I was thinking about, it. I'm like, even if Victoria doesn't think like the actual thought, like, Oh, her mind has been overridden with the psychology of a dog. She might very well just be like, well, a lot of powers mess with people's minds. Yeah. So her mind has been disturbed by her power. And, and like, that's enough of a starting point to kind of get there functionally. Yeah. And we'll see here whether she did it knowingly or not that she stumbles in like, to the exact correct way to make Rachel respect you. Yeah, right. Yeah, so for example, what was the answer on the other end? Like someone had been called up at three in the morning, letting the phone ring 10 times before the caller gave up, only for them to start again. A sweetheart, Victoria had said. You called me, I said. (laughs) Uh, It's just delightful. Every time I call someone from now on, that's how I'm going to start the conversation. Yeah. Wait, but, but you just... 
what? <laughs> yeah. It's wonderful. I want to save my absurd Rachel fanboying for when we actually get to, to see her in person in a bit okay. um, later in the chapter. So I'll save everything for there. But let's just say I love uh, literally everything about that phone call. Sounds good. Move on. So they agree to meet at a uh, Hooters level drive through restaurant. <laughs> um, but first they drop off Perrion at the hospital. Vicky sees Perrion out of costume and the text passingly mentions that she hadn't expected Perrion to be of Middle Eastern or Indian descent, but the text doesn't really dwell on it either. And I'm only really calling this out because it reminds me it's just of a you know possible parallel to Chicken Little's reaction to seeing Kenzie out of costume. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. I think that's a good parallel. Um, I think one of the, you could make an argument here that what we're doing is just seeing people as white by default. So we're always kind of surprised when they're not. But I do think it's kind of more interesting to look at this from the angle of how costumes, how masks alter our perception of people in general. Like, I think I don't think in amongst capes, I I, I don't think you could argue that they're they're like that they're seeing their race as cape right that like like you're not looking at people of of different races but your race is a you're a cape yeah right yeah i hadn't even given you a race in my mind you were just a cape yeah Yeah. and and i think that kind of shows how maybe you kind of how you can understand um the 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 depth of difference um between you know capes and non-capes where they look at they look at (laughs) Maybe their capes as general as their own independent race, um, and that that kind of explains the depth of difference between these two groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if you take the if you take the the label parahuman literally, it's like yeah, your capes are a different race, right? In in that in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder, like, this makes me think, like, we've explored this a few times throughout the story, and I wonder if we're going to continue to explore this idea we've generally seen this kind of slow breakdown of the idea of secret identities people are much less protective over theirs and and much less concerned with exposing others right um like cape names seem to be less of a thing in general like it helps that our point of view character like um is is open like everyone knows who she is and, and it's been that way for a while but you know our main team didn't even get names until they were in a moment where they had to. Uh, the heartbroken don't really have any cape names and they don't seem to want to. Um, it's just like we're seeing this kind of this this idea that people are just less concerned in, in this in this world as it is now. People are less concerned with this idea of costumes and secret identities. And and I'm just curious, you know, where this is going to continue to go and be explored as as things probably get worse. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think Victoria clinging to uh, kind of what you might call like the trappings of of Earthbet hero culture uh, yeah. is is something that increasingly few people care about uh, anymore these days. Um, so <laughs> uh, there's this moment which I think I think the import of this just like passed over my head completely, but, but a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people seized onto it. So definitely wanted to, to mention it. Um, How's your throat, baby? She asked. It took me a second to realize she was asking how the baby was, not calling me baby. It was like a slap in the face. She went on. Are congratulations in order? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of like a, a dark humor thing in the first place. Yeah. But Victoria, like, I don't even think uh, or I'm pretty sure, actually, that this is not aware of, the, of how how dark a place Victoria takes this to. 
No. Um, well, I mean, like, it's interesting because I think you can read it multiple ways, right? Yeah. Like, we don't get a really clear indication of which way Victoria is taking this. Like, my first read through, um, the first time I read it, and the second time I read it as well, um, I was convinced that she called her, she w- that Victoria thought she just called her baby in, like, a romantic way. Yeah. Like, how's the throat, baby? Um, and then, like, and then, like, the the completely taken aback, the slap in the face is, like, this idea of, this person that I'm really close with, this friend, this arguably like sister figure in my life just expressed romantic interest in me. And that um, that leads me down a, a, a freaking terrible rabbit hole that I don't want to go down. And it's awful. And it reminds me too much of other things. Um, and that's, I think, a completely fair read. But it's also possible that I was just overthinking it. And she just thought she was calling her a baby. Like, like, how's the throat, you baby? Like, stop whining about like, you know, like that's very possible, too. And and the, the slap in the face was just um, just like, like, how dare you minimize the terrible thing that just happened to me? Yeah, right. I mean, I think my read was like the most simplistic level of just like I misunderstood a person and then my brain like swerved to correct the misunderstanding. And I, I wouldn't describe that as a slap in the face, but it, it, it you always kind of feel like an idiot for a second. When you're like, oh, I need to rearrange my interpretation of that before yeah. proceeding with the conversation, and and like there is the level on which this is this is kind of a a cold like like crass thing for for uh, Vista to say, but that that's the thing is like I don't it doesn't really feel cold and crass because like they're close enough that I think like that's that's almost how you know if you're friends with someone is if you can say something outrageous to them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I think you're right. Um, um, and 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 maybe it's just like a. Like a lot of people, Vista seems like the type of person who turns to humor um, to deal with like the worst shit that's happening to her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's just kind of how some people cope. So I, I, I think that's that's just what she does. Yeah, I think that's what's happening here. So Victoria elaborates on her throat fetus within earshot of a convenience store clerk, which is both a great comedy moment and also kind of a perfect microcosm for the current Cape human dynamic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this guy is probably like. Oh my god, fucking capes. Yeah, right. <laughs> what the fuck is this? But also like to to read way too much into this. I do think you're right. I think it like it, it, it we see we see like this this general problem between capes and non-capes as, as this kind of lack of communication, right? Um that you know, regular normal humans see parahumans as uh, completely ignorant to what it is like living as an unpowered person in a world with powers, how powerless you feel, how unsafe you feel. Um, on the other hand, capes think that n- the regular humans uh, just aren't aware of like the holy shit metric ton of horribleness that they have to put up with every day. Like that you just they just don't have aspect to into how terrible actually being a parahuman is. Um, and then we get this moment where this guy is hearing her talk about this horrible stuff. And when she looks at him, he looks away. Right. And I just mm-hmm. like this idea of like, of, of the non-powered, like looking away from, from the, the worst aspects of being a, a parahuman. And that's how like these two sides just can't meet in the middle because like when it comes to it, you're going to look away. Yeah. You know, sometimes I worry that we're like sucking the humor out of, out of, out of things by, <laughs> by going into them in this way. But, but like, I don't think we really are because I think like, first of all, while is always doing more than one thing at the same time. Sure. Like, like no comedy beat is just a comedy beat. There's always, there's always something else going on. So, so yeah, when you're skimming, when you're skimming, this is pretty much 
you're you're perceiving this as a comedy moment of like Victoria loudly talking about these hor- horrifying things and the and the clerk just being like what the fuck is she talking about <laughs> and and then making eye contact but then like going into it you're like yeah i mean we've been talking about these themes the whole story this idea that that the people really don't understand what's going on here and like this guy is going to go home at the end of the day and probably like spend the rest of the day thinking about this for one thing and like maybe tell people about this and I, it's 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 like it's one of these minor things but it's like like i said it's sort of a microcosm of of everything that goes on in this world where the capes are just kind of aloofly going about their business like she's on the phone while while yeah. checking out which i've been told is rude actually um <laughs> so i avoid doing that um but uh like you know almost condescending i don't know i i think there's there's more to it than just like haha silly silly human um Anyway, we'll move on. Well, I mean, one of the things I love most about writing is this doesn't have to be an intentionally designed beat to reveal uh, a comment on the microcosm of of existence in this world. Like it it can just be a designed comedy beat. However, the thing about writing is things can reveal other things unintentionally. Yeah. Um, You know, because a writer has a world in his head and he's constructing things and not consciously making connections, but your brain works in mysterious ways. And, um, just if you have an idea of this is what humans and parahumans are like, and this is how they interact, even their interaction that is just supposed to be ha ha funny, um, reveals something about that relationship. So yeah, good point I like that. So Vista eventually gets around to getting something off her chest, uh, which you kind of almost suspect is like the reason why she called in the first place. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, that one of the voices, one of the dead voices in her head was Dean and she wants to just kind of vent about the complexity of having someone on a pedestal uh, who you actually believe should be on a pedestal and having having lost that person. Yeah, I mean, this is I think this is really interesting. I, I like it a lot. I mean, like like she calls her, has a whole conversation with her, hangs up and then uh, calls back afterwards to ask how the Rachel conversation went. Or I think Victoria calls her back rather. And it's only then after Victoria like pushes her, does she finally talk about the Dean stuff? It's like she wanted to the whole time and was working towards it, but couldn't quite do it. Um, Missed it on the first opportunity and then prying from Victoria actually finally made her bring it up. And it is very interesting because like in the back of my head, you know, when you're analyzing a book, one of the things you're doing is like thinking about like what, function can certain characters play in the story like and and that's one of the things i've been thinking about vista in general is how functionally is she going to relate to our main character what is her what is her role in the story and one of the, the things that immediately jumped out at me here was was that that reminder that hey vista used to have like a big crush on dean like that was something she had and we've been slowly circling around dean a fairly a a fair amount of times in these last few chapters and around this, this idea of how, how Victoria puts Dean on a pedestal and then, you know, brief moments where she kind of realizes or takes him off that pedestal. And, and, and then we have Vista come in here who is doing a very similar thing. And I love it. I love it so much. I love this, this, this view of Dean that is similar to hers, her view coming from a different source. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it allows her to um reflect on things in a in a different way because she's basically 
she had that's one thing when you have to talk about something instead of just thinking about it is you're forced to really kind of figure out where you stand on it yeah in a way that you don't necessarily when you're ruminating and she's been doing a lot of ruminating about dean but um doesn't really talk about it and and i think that what she says in this conversation is actually quite distinct from what she said like many arcs ago when she was you know basically bragging to sveta about how awesome he was just yeah sort of without any caveats yeah i mean i mean vista says you know he it was not angry dean dean never got angry and victoria's response is he got angry sometimes um it's like I, we're not puffing and vista says you know i don't feel like i'm puffing him up i just feel like he was actually that good of a person and victoria's response is we puff him up a little <laughs> and and it's like like this is like when when confronted with a person who's doing a very similar thing that she is her reaction is to pull back on that a little bit. Her reaction is to say, well, okay, let's be honest here a little bit. Um, he's not, he was not this perfect person. He was not, he, he's very good. And, and like, I think we don't want to say that like realizing that he was not perfect means actually he was terrible and nothing you said about him was right. I think, I think Vista makes a good point here that he actually was a really wonderful person. He was a good guy. He did good things. Um, but, but he's not perfect. And and that's the danger with putting him on a pedestal is, is you lose sight of the the imperfections, even in a good person. Everyone has them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, t- to me, this seems like a, a healthy part of the grieving process for Victoria, where she's yeah. she's uh, like you said, she's not tr- trashing him. She's just like, uh, I'm getting some perspective yeah. on myself and my own feelings about this. And I'm able to say, like, you know what, I'm I, I, I am putting him on a pedestal and. Um, and I don't, I don't need to do that. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. And, and Vista's, uh, therapist is basically telling her the same thing. Like, look, that's not good. Yeah. Don't do that. It's like, well, you don't have to focus on the one negative thing I said about him. And she's like, well, she's not doing that to like dig at this guy's memory. She's doing that to get you to see him in a different light away from the unhealthy light you were putting him in right now. I mean, when you are at a place where you miss this person so much that you're willing to go find the guy um, that made you see dead people for three months just to get another hit of seeing Dean, um, that's a problem. And if focusing on maybe one of the more negative aspects of his personality gets you out of that really messed up desire, um, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's so complicated for something that's conveyed sort of indirectly through yeah. dialogue. But yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that take. Um, so we kind of start to wrap this up with uh, Vista. I keep wanting, I keep wanting to say Vicky because they're V words with Vista <laughs> saying, okay, don't become one of those voices in my head, Victoria. I'll put you in a corner of my brain with Bastion, Barrow Rose and Shatter, Shatterbird. Now, um, I know, we knew about Bastion. We knew about Shadowbird. Is Barrel Rose new? So um, I believe that, Bar- and, and I, I don't even know who to thank for pointing this out, but I think Barrel Rose was the name of, this is a pretty deep worm cut, but basically um, there was like a, a, a rumor of like, uh, like at one point either, either, either a cord or tattletale or skitter are like listing all of the current threats that are imposing on Brockton Bay. And one of them is like a, a vegetative depression is heading slowly yeah, at a walking slow pace. slow moving garden, right? Yeah. yeah. Slow moving garden. And, and apparently that's Barrow Rose. 
Yeah, I, I remembered that. Well, I, I, I wikied it, <laughs> but um, I didn't remember it. But um, I just didn't know if we knew at the end of Worm if Barrow Rose was dead. Um, yeah, I don't think we did. No, okay. and, and so, I certainly didn't know that Vista did it, if so, yeah. or was so related. Keep, yeah. Poor, poor Vista. Just keep um, keep adding to your, your kill count. Yeah. And it's um, it's sad that she like feels so responsible for Bastion, too. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we know that she's seeing the people like when she sees dead people, she sees the, the people she liked and the people she was responsible for killing. And right. I wonder I wonder if those those illusions are nice to her or not. <laughs> If, yeah. if Bastion has nice things to say to her, if yeah. Shatterbird has nice, I, well, I, I doubt Shatterbird has nice things to say <laughs> no, to her. Th- that sounds like the worst one, honestly. Yeah. yeah. So, and maybe you're going to disagree with me on this. Um, I, I don't want this to be true, but there was an air of finality to this conversation, to the end of this conversation to me that made me really worried. Um, it feels like two people that are never going to talk to me, talk to each other again. Like there's this like, don't okay victoria don't die call me when all this is over okay yeah you too i hung up and it just felt final to me and i don't want that to be true obviously i don't want that to be true but that's just a feeling i got from it when i really sat down and studied the conversation yeah well um i i definitely see what you mean and i I, like my kind of reading on it is is yeah it could be that it could just be that like they're some plot movements are going to happen such that they're just not able to be in touch for quite some time um, to the extent that like it makes a sense to, it makes sense to kind of close off this thread for you. Cause uh, like uh, some of what it's doing is it's, it's giving you permission to say like, all right, this conversation's over. We're moving on from this. Sure. And kind of free up that like Ram in your brain, I guess. And it could just be doing that, but I definitely like I'm 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 hearing the tone that you're that you're pointing out. Um, I mean, another perfectly fair take, I think, is that both of our characters feel like this could be it. Both of our characters are about to go into really bad situations mm-hmm. um, where they might die. And so they are they are bringing that tone, not, not necessarily the, the text itself is bringing that tone, but the characters, the point of view we're we're in are bringing that tone. Um, that's very possible. Yeah, it's interesting though. I hadn't really thought about that at all, so now I'm freaked out. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so Victoria, having bought uh, cold medicine at the uh, at the convenience store, knocks back half a bottle of cold medicine. <laughs> um, so first of all, having recently been relying on cold medicine to get through my week, this seems inadvisable, uh, especially when it's cold medicine from another dimension. Uh, I expect the subsequent arc to be called hallucination as a result of this. <laughs> that's a good one um i i think you're right I, I love how kind of shows how fucking stretched thin she is at this point she's just grab the stuff suck it down anything that keeps me out there anything that keeps me going um i have to be there i have to go i have to do this uh, i feel terrible i had a giant fetus in my mouth and whatever's gonna make that feel better let's do it yeah right i just hope it doesn't you know have any side effects Sure, sure. So when they rendezvous with Rachel, she's using her dogs to terrorize a mercenary because he looked at her funny, uh, which is absolutely great because the reader's like, oh, he looked at her funny. And what like um, basically if she interpreted it as hostile, then uh, this guy must be a villain or a traitor. (laughs) Um, Also, we know from the last chapter that they do have, you know, a traitor. 
but Victoria, our POV, is understandably like, oh, Rachel is insane and dangerous and I need to do yeah. something about this. I missed Rachel so much. This first interaction, she's back. <laughs> We're dealing with the same same old Rachel shit. And yeah. I love it. Same uh, old Rachel shit, but like more refined and 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 uh, developed. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. I love I love this this fucking interaction when she's asking, why are you doing this? He looked at me funny. Yeah what <laughs> just, yeah <laughs> she starts saying something yeah what <laughs> like right. it's just the exasperation Be, in it because i mean because he looked at me funny is is like the worst possible answer right but also makes perfect sense right it's the worst possible answer for any human other than <laughs> uh rachel who has like super awareness sense of seeing bo- how body language uh connects to how some what someone might be doing exactly yeah so Rachel has heartwarming reunions with all the heartbroken uh, while the man's head is still in the dog's mouth um, <laughs> and kind of addresses them on their own individual wavelength. It's pretty cool to see, like, even the relatively hostile Eroa, um, she, she, like, knows how to interact with in a way that disarms her. So it's just like these kids are her puppies. Yeah, um, this is, you know, full stop, one of my favorite moments in the book so far. Like, I, I don't really have anything particularly smart or clever or analytical to say about it. I just love it. I love everything Rachel is here. I love everything Rachel has become. I just, I just love it. And I started thinking about this and I think wild Bo really, really likes Rachel. Like I know, <laughs> like I know he like loves all his characters, like blah, blah, blah. He likes all like you, you create all these characters. You like it. But, but I think like there's, there's real admiration in the subtext of this moment. And I think part of that probably comes from Victoria. Um, I think she's seeing these things and she's been told by Vista that Rachel is actually a sweetheart. And she's seeing now in this gruff kind of different kind of person, she's seeing probably the sweetheart part of her that Vista was talking about. Um, but I do think part of it comes from the author. And I think, I think there's some level of like, like pride in her in the writing, like in the text of the writing. And I think that feels like a funny thing to say because like, he he wrote the growth like like how, how do you be proud of someone for growing when you you wrote that <laughs> but writing's weird sometimes right and sometimes yeah. that's not how it works sometimes you just kind of draw characters and you put them in a situation and just see how they react and sometimes their reactions surprise you and i'm not necessarily saying that that's what happened with rachel that's what happened here i just felt like love emanating from the scene and it wasn't just like coming from me you know like wasn't just like me loving the scene it felt like the scene was loving the scene um and that just it made me really happy yeah i really like that phrasing i mean i'm i'm a pretty pretty novice writer especially relative to wildbo but like i usually feel more like i'm channeling characters than like responsible for them like like right. their their words and actions never quite feel like i'm i'm saying them um right. and so like i can totally empathize with like having a character where you're just like you're awesome you're awesome yeah. rachel good job i'm proud of you yeah, yeah right yeah yeah and of course we have to comment on the best line in this whole chapter which is uh rain saying can we address the guy, <laughs> the dog with the guy's head in his mouth? <laughs> He's just like so exasperated. It's like, are we going to, are we going to go back to this? And we have this heart, heartwarming moment between all these characters. And it's like, um, Hey, what about that thing? Yeah. Yeah. I love, I, I like that. It's, I like that. It's rain saying it too. And not Victoria because right. <laughs> I, Victoria's head's in a little bit of a different place. And yeah. yeah. Um, and then Victoria permanently wins Rachel over by telling her that she never had a dog 
because uh, if the whole family were brutally killed, the dog would be alone. Yeah. And Rachel's like, that's true. And you're so wise. Um, <laughs> and and then Candy uh, proves to Rachel how monstrous the heartbroken are by offhandedly mentioning that they had a dog that died. Yeah. Bad call, Candy. Don't say that yeah, in, fr- right. it's, in front of Rachel. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of like just offhandedly being like, yeah, we, we had a baby. It died. Like just without yeah. emotion, you know? Yeah. Um, so like this is so interesting to me, right? Because like Candy comes back with a pretty good point where Victoria is like, no, it wouldn't be fair to a dog because we're out caping. And what if we die? And and Rachel's like, fair. Uh-huh. And Candy's like, not fair. They had you like it's like it's like I don't want to get a dog because I might die. And then who's going to take care of the dog? So instead, I'll have a child. <laughs> Yeah. And this guy actually got me curious because I, I did not remember um, the kind of the situation around Carol and and Victoria and having Victoria. Um, so I got curious and I, I dove back into Worm to kind of find out, you know, the story of this. And um, it, it's not that Victoria was an oh baby, um, but Victoria was I think you described it as a, a regretful <laughs> acquiescence baby. Yeah. Reluctant baby. Yeah. Reluctant baby. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I look back like. In the scene where, um, you know, Brandish is being told to take Amy, um, she says, you know, I never planned to have kids. I remember you saying something like that. But then you had Vicky. I only caved to having Vicky because Mark was there and I had to think about it for a while. So it's like <laughs> the reason why they didn't have a dog and the reason why they did have Vicky even after they probably sh- shouldn't have was like. She didn't really want to. Yeah. And like her, her husband kind of really did. And she caved. Yeah. Like the word <laughs> caved me- in this context is yeah. like, that's like worse than an accident. <laughs> can you, can you imagine your child learning about that? Like how devastating that would be? Yeah. 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 I finally caved. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. exist. Cause I finally caved. Cause your, your father was nagging me. So I finally caved. Yeah. Oh, Ugh, Carol. thank you. Yeah. Um, I like this bit where Candy again pretends to be able to detect lies in order to assist with the interrogation of the Merc who looked at Rachel funny. Yeah, this is great. And I want to ask you this question because I can't I literally can't decide. I can't decide if Candy was just lying about lying about the lie power <laughs> and she can detect lies or if this is just a thing she just does to everyone, right? That she just like has fun with this this perception that she can detect lies and just fucks with people. Um, it's, fu- <laughs> it's it's funny because that occurred to me too, as like as like she actually does have some kind of power that is borderline lie detecting, um, but but pretends that she doesn't when it's funny. But <laughs> I, I think she probably just doesn't have it. Um, yeah, I remember there was that cape. Um, um, that, that that was a lie detector cape in in the um in the in the prison and yeah uh, but uh name was something funny that I don't remember <laughs> now but um yeah so Victoria is very uncomfortable with all this how this interrogation is going uh, but nonetheless she indicates for Rain to use his power to help things along the other mercenaries take this power use as a cue to attack and the heroes easily disarm them Victoria then uses her power in conjunction with Rain's. Hers acting as a slap in the face, his acting as the regret that teaches the lesson. He finally spills the beans, tells her the other groups are defeated, uh, some cut into pieces, and then tells her the bad guys have already won. Hey, Matt. Uh-huh. 
how do we feel about this emotional aura torture they just used here? And maybe it's a, a, a leading question when I use the word torture in it. Um, yeah, how, how does that make you feel? It's not so bad. I mean, I mean, like, I mean, honestly, they're not doing any like physical violence to them, not, not doing anything permanent. It's it it strikes me as being on the spectrum of like locking a perp in the um in the interrogation room and like letting them sweat it out and then coming in at 45 minute intervals and grilling them like like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the power is 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 way worse than I'm kind of imagining it to be. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very quick. I agree. It's just very, very intense. Well, it, um, it, it does seem a little bit like a, a little bit line crossing for Victoria, but not so much that I'm like freaking out about it. Yeah, I mean, like I, I think she's uncomfortable with it, and that's yeah. I think that's pretty important that she's she she shows uncomfortable like how she's um she, how she's uncomfortable, and I mean um like we see that Rain's kind of uncomfortable with it too, which I wonder like that's part of the part of it that I'm not really sure about too. Like there's this, this one beat that we didn't focus on, but like when they're like starting to really rough up the guy before they switch to Rain's aura, like Victoria notices Rain is getting uncomfortable with it. Um, I think he probably has some serious, like, <laughs> like really, really icky things with that kind of extreme yeah. uh questioning method Coercion those kind of and, yeah, yeah yeah i think like that that makes him generally uncomfortable and you kind of we get we get to see this little beat where he like shifts noticeably and like like his his he, like i think his face hardens a little bit um and so like i i wonder how like forcing him into doing this thing is like probably something that he's not thrilled about but yeah yeah i mean i i don't think like I was being a little tongue in cheek when I call it torture. I don't think it's like they're literally torturing this person, but I mean, they are like quickly, you know, riding up to a line of, you know, in our desperation, we're willing to push, push against people very hard and, and make them very, very scared and uncomfortable. And, and I mean, we see how devastating these powers can be. Yeah. I kind of viewed it almost as, um, Victoria being like, all right, I can, (laughs) if, if I don't step in here with a solution, then Rachel's going to keep using her dogs and and other weird stuff is going to happen. So it's actually better for this guy and for everyone if I just step in and we do this tag team with, with Rain. Man, it's a soft-mouthed dog. It's fine. You're, you're right. It's a soft-mouthed dog. It's no, it's no big deal. I thought that was pretty funny. It's like, <laughs> it's like well, first of all, don't say that where he can hear it because... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could still definitely chomp your head off if it wanted to, but right. the mouth is so soft. It's the size of a truck, but yeah. and, and also it's like its whole bone, its whole body's covered in bone spikes. Yeah, but somehow the soft mouth nature has been preserved, I guess. <laughs> All right. So yeah, that's the end. Um, we yeah. we end with with the bad guys thinking they have already won. Uh oh. Yeah, not a good not a good sign. Not, not good. Um, it, it's one of those good kind of cliffhangers where I'm like, I'm not angry. <laughs> But, right. it, but it's still like dun dun dun. Well, and there's um, that interesting beat where uh, they're like, where the, the mercenary says that Love Lost and Cradle are, you know, heading to another world. And in the back of your head, you're like, that can't be true. Like, there's no way they're going to leave Rain still alive. They're not going to like, like Love Lost's plan was always to to fuck off to another world and just hang out there, right? That's what she said. But she's not done yet. So part of me is like, I don't, I don't know if I buy that part of it or maybe i mean maybe the merc's just mistaken or maybe he's not telling the full truth i don't know yeah yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know what to make of that exactly 
see, there's the thing about uh, confessions that are coerced by extreme uh, measures is they're not usually 100% accurate. True, true. We'll have to wait and see which parts of this were not accurate. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's do the community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. I just want to say before we move on, um, everyone has been really positive about the fact that we've moved this to the end. And I completely agree with all of you. Like part of me was like, does it really make a difference? And I feel like it does. So all of those that suggested this, thank you. You were 100 percent right. And it works so much better here. Yeah, I don't want to go into all of the the reasons, but I agree. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the, the question last week was doubt and regret are pervasive themes in Worm and Ward. Pick a character and discuss how doubt or regret play into their story. Uh, so we got some really great answers this week. So first, uh, Calinero985 says uh, they, they choose Tattletale. Tattletale's trigger stemmed from obs- obsessively second-guessing every interaction she ever had with her older brother, looking for some sign that she had missed. And whenever she's put in a situation where she doubts herself or where her power is unreliable, she doubles down. She wants to appear omniscient because she wants to be omniscient, because she wants to basically conquer um, that that doubt um, and, and that regret that she's plagued with. And I think this is a great example of a character who is almost defined by those emotions. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I think it fits into a lot of her behavior, you know, throughout just one of the chapters we talked about here, that her frustration with the fact that she was wrong and her need to put herself in a situation where she's going to direct them to safety. And right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yep. Next up, we have Bisexual Punch Party, my favorite question answer name. (laughs) Um, They chose Dr. Mother, notable for her apparent lack of doubt and regret. She doesn't hesitate to use a knife to kill a god because a kid asked her to. She's completely on board with all the atrocities that that Cauldron gets up to. Even at the end, Dr. Mother is without regrets. At the end of this, I will face any and all punishment that I'm due, alive or dead. That's a a great, you know, kind of uh, turn on the question there because doubt or regret don't play into her story. She feels a hundred percent that she's fully justified. And, you know, we, we, we talked a lot throughout the story of worm about, you know, Taylor and how she was similar to and different from cauldron. And I think that's the biggest one at the end of the day, Dr. Mother, no regrets at the end of the day, Taylor. Yeah, definitely some regrets. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I like this quote, especially because the idea is she's like, well, you know, she's almost admitting like, yeah, maybe it was wrong, but uh, you know, if so, I'll get my punishment, yeah. Well, you know, alive or dead, implying like in, in an afterlife or something. Right. And and I remember Sveta in that scene is like that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say that, right? Um, Predatorian tackles foil and says Lily is defined by her aversion to doubt and regret. They suggest that the reason why Foyle never exhibited any doubts or reservations about her decision to abandon the Brockton Bay wards and join the villains is that she never allowed herself to. She's a soldier at heart and does whatever is expected to stay on the path she's been directed on. She resents Taylor shaking her sense of certainty about her path and reacts by joining Parian, who provides her with a new path. And she still exhibits these same traits in Ward, not letting herself feel doubt about her place with the Undersiders. So it's interesting to me that you know, Tattletail is someone who is sort of dominated by doubt and regret. And Foil is someone who just manages to not notice the doubt and regret that she feels. Yeah, I like that because it might explain why they kind of uh, rub each other the wrong way so so often. Yeah. Cool. All right. Next up, we have Pizza Hot Dog Lover. And now every time I hear that name, I'm going to think that's what the 
the fetus babies <laughs> smelled like. It's gross. Yep. Uh, they choose all of the members of Breakthrough. All of them. Uh, I'm not going to go through all six that were listed, but suffice it to say that every member of Breakthrough does have major regrets about their own actions in the past, and they're all atoning for the things they regret in different ways. So yeah, this was a, a really good comment. Really extensive. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I do recommend you guys check it out. Yeah, I had this one thought where I was like, does that really apply to Sveta? Because all of her murdering was actually like not her fault per se. And, yeah. and then I and then I was like, actually, the thing she really regrets is uh, the um, irregulars, not not her murders. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think I think it is like completely true that the murders were not her fault, but like. I think she probably has like maybe maybe regrets the wrong word, but guilt for it. Yeah, like you're still you're still at the end of the at the end of the day, the one that took the life. Like, yes, it's not your fault. Yes, it it is no way you're you are no way responsible for that thing. But you were still there. You like you still did it. And that that has an effect on you. Yeah. In, In either case, it's fair to say that she also has the doubt and regret just like everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah Penguin goes with Amy. At first, uh, she's dominated by doubt and her uh, about her parentage and her ability to do sufficient good, causing herself to be demoralized and ground down by her volunteer work. Her major re- regrets come in when she first mind whammies and then blobifies the only person she, uh, the only person who really cared about her. Uh, and then in Ward, she seeks forgiveness but doesn't quite understand what she's asking forgiveness for. And uh, interestingly, Sarah Penguin points out nobody's really in a position to clear it up for her. Uh, they kind of go into how like there's nobody who can really talk to Panacea and tell her like what what she did and and what she what she would even need to do to atone for it. Yeah. Um, and they they include this great passage. Uh, Sarah Penguin says Panacea is named after a Greek goddess. Despite having the power to heal, the only wound she wants to heal, the relationship with her sister, is the only one she cannot heal. And every attempt just opens the wound up more making amy a greek tragedy i love that i love that a lot yeah yeah and i think i think the point that nobody's really in the position to clear that up for her and the thing i want to make very clear at least in my opinion is it is not victoria's responsibility to clear that up for for amy like like as the victim in this thing it is not your responsibility to explain to your abuser um how they can get forgiveness from you yeah Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like the closest thing to a person who could explain it to her would actually be Chris at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or like her mom would probably be a good person if her mom like had a level of normal empathy. <laughs> that yeah, she well, just doesn't seem to have. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sarah Penguin does point out, like, first of all, her mom like was sort of incapable of of understanding the level of suffering that was happening with yeah. her daughter, even even when she was visiting in the hospital um and and now is like get over it man my uh my my trip down back to worm and the rabbit hole i chased down just to find out what what carol thought of having a daughter in the first place uh scanned me by the one scene where she says that uh my daughter is gone that 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 thing that is left over is a a, like a a gross approximation or memory of mockery or whatever mockery yeah Yeah, she says a mockery and it's just like oh fuck (laughs) yeah jesus carol (laughs) Yeah, that, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, all right. Uh, next up, we have Lost Man 138. 
and they pick Ashley. Ashley remembers all her failures as damsel. You could even say Eclipse is a greatest hits of her failures and things she regrets. A big turning point is her turning herself in after she kills B.O.B. as the way of expressing that even though she's made a fresh mistake, she's still going to atone for it rather than abandon the path of a hero. Very good answer. Completely agree with that. Um, it, it makes me, you know, go back to that one time early in the, the story where, where Ashley was like, okay, I'm going to try this hero thing out, but the second it doesn't work, I'm out. And uh, we've seen that that is absolutely not the case because it has not worked a whole bunch of times and she's still there doing the hero thing. Yeah, right. She's she's had all these opportunities, all this time to reflect on what her life really was. Like, and remember that, you know, one of the first scenes we have, she she has this like smile on her face when she, when she talks about the Boston games, how the Boston games were so great. They were, they were her at her best. Yeah. And when we had Eclipse, it's like, no, no, man. <laughs> That's your best. <laughs> yeah, you're being honest with yourself now that this was not great. Yeah. This sucked and it's horrible and was painful and it's just a big fat regret. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I like that answer a lot. Finally, uh, SNES C brings up Colin. Arms Master was a man who did his utmost to transform himself into someone who couldn't fail, but he wasn't getting the recognition he felt deserved. Uh, leading him to stray from moral behavior. After his rebirth as Defiant, he frequently reflects on his regrets and shortcomings. In the end, uh, Colin is still trying to live without regrets. He just learned that that doesn't mean being so good you never fail. It means you own up to those failings and learn to be better. I like that a lot. I love that too. I think that's absolutely absolutely correct. Um, yep. That's that's Colin to a T. And yep. I hope he continues down that path. We haven't seen too much of him in this story, but... Uh, Sure, we'll see a little bit more before the story's through. Yeah, and he, and he does seem like he's still on that path. And yeah. and, and Snessy actually brings up the the time when Victoria kind of confronts him about his role in in the death of her relatives, and yeah. he's like, he's like, he's like, you know, I can't, I can't tell you that I wasn't responsible, and yeah. and you know, you let like l let me know what I can do to atone for it. Love and it. It's like, yeah, yeah, love it, love it. So just like one general comment in the thread that wasn't in answer to the question, um, Rid Tom makes an excellent post detailing how Foil uh, is just constantly expecting people to bail on her. <laughs> um, you should re just like scan over the post because it's it's long because Rid Tom has collated like many, many times that this happens going back all the way to Worm. So you should really check it out. And uh, what's interesting is that every time it's happened where Victoria is present, Victoria is like, no. Nobody's going to abandon anybody. Yeah. And uh, it's just a great, um, like, very clearly consistent and intentional character trait of, of foils. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to explore that a little more in the, the coming conflict. Because it's so funny. We have, like, we have the, the rain conflict moving towards his people. Um, and then we have the foil conflict moving towards her person. And um, they're both together. So it feels like both of these things could be coming to a very, very specific head. Yeah, true, yeah. true. And so the discussion question for this coming week is, uh, what is the most horror, horror, horror awesome moment in Parahumans? I don't, I don't actually know how we're going to spell that because you wrote it's, horror some, but no, I decided mid, mid podcast that we're going to call it horror awesome. Horror awesome there. <laughs> there we go. I spelled you did it. it. There we go. You did yep. it. Uh, yeah. Perfect. So just tell us, you know, you guys know the def definition now. We're just making up words on this podcast. We do it all the time. There's a new one. What's yeah. your favorite moment of it? I think this is how we're going to make all of our discussion questions from now on. We're just, just going to make up words. a word and say, yeah. what's the most Hamada, uh, uh, parahumans thing? Oh, I love the Hamada moment. Uh, yeah. Love it. Yeah. 
And and we're just not even going to give context for what that means next time. Yeah. We're just going to have to just figure it out. Yeah. And Subtext. That's all, yeah, exactly. And that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, hamada, or thoughts on this week's reading. <laughs> You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter, where you'll hear uh, me mostly whining about things, is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at hamadam. <laughs> and if you're not already subscribed, we've got Ward. We strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at our website, www.doofmedia.com. That's where everything we do is is there. Find it. Look at it. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Just go there. That's right, Scott. And if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contest and costume contest, Q&A sessions with us, access to live streams of our recording sessions like this one, and our excellent Discord chat. Uh, special thanks to new Bidoofs Colleen O and SNES at the $1 level and Fairlax at the $2 level. We really appreciate y'all. Yeah, we do. Thank yeah. you so much. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate, that is absolutely okay. We never want to stretch you guys financially. We appreciate all your donations, but we understand. Um, but Because there, there's tons of other ways to help us out. You can share the podcast with everyone you know. And one of the other things you can do, it's super easy, I promise. You head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. We have no new reviews to read this week, which means you guys got to get on it and go and send them in. We love hearing them and we'll read them. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you guys for all taking the time to do that. It really honestly, like sincerely does help with, with, with Apple's weird algorithms. Like th that's a big, big, big part of it. So we appreciate you all taking the time to do that. Yeah. And you know, we also have a Facebook page. If anybody wants to go over there, we don't really plug it. But uh, we do a really bad job at that. Yeah. It I, exists. Half of the time I forget to put the episodes on there. Yeah. I need to but work you, on that. You know, I mean, I mean, that'd be cool too. If yeah. you want. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. Um, all right. So that's all for this week. We'll be back next week with some more Arc 11 blinding. Darling, 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 darling. You really killed the fuck out of that man. <laughs> <laughs>